from the Gospel according to St. Mark. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Gospel of the Lord. I expect that we all like to think that the world is shaped in a particular way. Don't we? That what we know to be true is, in fact, true, reliable, predictable. I mean, we want to know that when we flip the light switch, the lights are going to come on. And it's always been that way. I mean, years and years ago, as you may recall from your high school history classes, conventional wisdom held that the the earth was at the very center of the universe and that the sun and all of the planets revolved around our own little world. So in certain respects, little has changed. But a man named Copernicus stumbled on a new vision of reality, a theory called, interestingly enough, the Copernican theory, which postulated the earth was not, in fact, the center of everything. He believed that the rising and the setting of the sun could be explained by the earth rotating on its axis. Now, according to Copernicus, the earth and the planets actually revolved around the sun. Everybody laughed like it was the best joke they ever heard when Copernicus laid out his little theory. I mean, they weren't naive. They knew how the world worked. There were no fooling them with their fancy science. Then about a hundred years later, a, a, a man called Galileo came along and he invented a neat little device called the telescope. And guess what? Galileo proved that Copernicus was right. Well, 
to make a long story short, people weren't very happy with these nutty scientists. No matter how smart they thought they were, they didn't want them fooling around with reality. Now, let's be honest, the church especially had problems with this new era, uh, turn of events and, and, and stopped calling these ideas dumb and started calling them heretical. The church, as we've proven time and again, is very often the most intractable when it comes to adapting to a new vision of reality. Now, anyway, <clears throat> jump ahead about 400 years to a time when we sent some fellows up into space and told them to take some pictures. They did, and for the first time ever, we were presented with the picture of the world in which we live. And now what? I mean, we parachuted onto the surface of Mars and we're looking for signs of life. I mean, we've got even better pictures of the world in which we live, as well as the great sea of planets and stars that our world swims in. Now, always before, we had to settle for pictures of small patches of dirt close to us. The world we supposed was, was, was big and round in, in, in theory, but we had no real way of conceiving of it in its totality until somebody got way beyond us, looked down on all of us, and brought a picture of how things really are. Now we know that the universe isn't just this big map of lights painted on a dome. Reality, as postmodernism has been busy trying to exclaim, uh, ex explain to us, is a pretty slippery thing. I mean, our expectations of how the world is often situated come up inadequate. And we're constantly having to revise our beliefs about what's true and what's just not possible. We are, all of us, building. I mean, constantly constructing new assumptions about reality, only to have them called into question. Only to have our worlds torn down and new worlds proposed for us. And it's not just this huge cosmological scale either. I mean, it happens to us personally, right? <clears throat> My child would never <laughs> do drugs. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to have to tell you this. What's the matter, Doc? I'm, I'm healthy as a horse. I haven't been a sick a day in my life. Well, I have some bad news for you. The tests came back. So, honey, but I mean, we've been married for 30 years. We, we got a great marriage. Yeah, well, there's this man at work. I mean, you can see what I mean, right? We're forever finding out that the world is never entirely as we thought it was. When I was in college, <clears throat> I read this little book, interesting little book, uh, called The Flatlands, which is it's about this two-dimensional world, and everything and everybody in the world is confined to just two dimensions. I mean, people could only see in straight lines. So one day, this guy from a third dimension, uh, three-dimensional world, you just dropped in on them. And they, of course, could only see part of him at any given time, just a, just a slice. And so to their eyes, he looked just like they expected everybody to look. But then an amazing thing happened. This newcomer could move in three dimensions, and when he moved to the side or he walked behind them, they thought he disappeared. 
They, they assumed that he was a god because he completely exploded their conceptual frameworks. I mean, they had no possible way to conceive of a third dimension until they were finally presented with one. And after that, they could never look at the world in quite the same way again. Now, that's fiction, you say. But, all right, how about this? I mean, you've seen the pictures, right? I mean, is it a duck or is it a rabbit? Is it a candlestick or two faces looking at each other? I mean, it's not the Middle Ages, but we're just as prone to believe that the way we see the world isn't just a perception of reality. It is, in fact, reality. The world is very much shaped by our perceptions of it, what's possible, what's not possible. But sometimes our perceptions of reality need to adjust themselves to a reality that we just could not see before. As Ron Crouch once said in a meeting I was in, unfortunately for most of us, the difference between perception and reality is that reality changes. But I mean, that's hard. It's, it's difficult to readjust your assumptions about the way the world is ordered. I mean, it can be a difficult thing to have the landscape of your expectations altered. Now, Peter and the disciples in our gospel for this morning experience a, a similar jarring readjustment of their expectations about the way the world really works. The disciples have been following Jesus around now for a little while. Jesus sort of checks in with them and he says, uh, you know, you, you guys have been around for, for some time with me now. You, you must have... You must have heard some word on the street. I mean, who do people say that I am? And the disciples jump in with some names that, you know, they think might impress the boss. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Now, to be compared uh, to these folks, is a, it's a compliment. But Jesus gets a little bit more personal and he says, all right, fine, but who do you say that I am? Peter, the Hermione Granger of the disciples, beats everybody to the punch. He stabs his hand up in the air, and he says, you're the Messiah. Now, Christians through the years have tended to view talk about the Messiah as some kind of spiritual designation, roughly the, the equivalent of the, the, the second person of the Trinity, a, a divine figure who's sort of going through the earthly motions for our benefit, but in fact, in first century Palestine, that is prior to the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 CE, years and years after Jesus was already gone, but we don't have any documentary evidence of a general expectation of the Messiah. Now, that's not to say that there was no messianic hope. There was. But the hope of a Messiah had to do with what we called in fifth grade social studies, current events. The hope for a Messiah was a political hope, a, a longing for a revolutionary who would be so fed up with Roman authority and their collaborationist bootlickers in the temple that the people would flock to him in a popular rebellion. I mean, the Messiah would be like um, William Wallace or, or Robin Hood. He'd, he'd, he'd lead a strike against the Roman occupation government and that, that Messiah would inspire the peasants in the countryside to rise up, throw off their shackles, 
and overthrow their Roman overlords. So when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, well, you're the Messiah. I mean, that's the kind of Messiah that Peter's got in mind. At this point in time, the, the disciples are convinced that they're following Spartacus in some great uprising against their oppressors. I, yeah, I mean, it's hard to blame them. If you know anything about Palestine in Jesus' time, I mean, you realize that the people Jesus comes from, the, the downtrodden people he hangs out with, the, the, the peasants who are attracted to him, are all people who've drawn the short straw in life. Most of them are subsistence farmers, local artisans, uh, fishermen, day laborers. I mean, all these people struggle day after day just to stay one step ahead of the man. And because of the spiraling cycle of debt so many of them found themselves in, they often had to make a choice about whether or not to send their own children away to become uh, to become day laborers, to, to, to look for work, since with the family debt burden, they could no longer keep these families together. They just couldn't afford it. They became sharecroppers on their own land. And all of this, the, the, this cycle of indebtedness, the, the, the destitution, the breaking up of families and their family farms, could be laid at the feet of the Romans... And their client rulers, Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, and the chief priests of the temple, all of whom levied extortionate taxes on the small landholders and craftspeople. So the thought that the Palestinian version of Che Guevara was getting ready to start an insurgent campaign against the source of their pain must have been intoxicating to people like Peter and the disciples. Like, I mean, can't think of anything else kind of longing for that eventuality. You can imagine Peter clinging to something like the image of Fred Hampton in the Black Panthers as he says with pride to Jesus, you are the Messiah. But then, as Jesus, Jesus often does, he goes and blows up the whole dream as he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And, I mean, in your mind, you can just see the horrified looks on the faces of the disciples as Jesus drops this little nugget of joy in their laps. Wait, what? You're going to suffer and die? No. See, I mean, that's not, that's not how this works. The way this works is you keep building a following. You keep bringing in the disaffected and the sorely used. And when the time's right, you give a rousing pre-battle speech. And we rise up and we get rid of these Romans once and for all. That's how this goes. Now, Peter says what everybody else is thinking. He says, no way. I would never let that happen to you. You're, you're way too important to the revolution to die before it even gets started. And Jesus, of course, responds with exasperation. No, 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 no. That's not how this goes at all. Just get behind me, Satan. 
But you see, it's what comes next that must have given everybody some real heartburn. If any want to become my followers, let them take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the world and forfeit their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory. Now, you may be wondering why Jesus' disciples would have taken this spoiler so badly. I mean, after all, all Jesus does is tell his followers that they're going to have to take up their cross. So, but why is that a big deal? I mean, <laughs> we've all got our crosses to bear, am I right? I mean, we've grown up hearing that kind of stuff, right? <sighs> little Luella, she's such a pistol. Her mother and I have always said she's our little cross to bear. Wayward children, problem spouses, overbearing parents, demanding bosses, arthritis, male pattern, baldness, the heartbreak of psoriasis. I mean, all of these things and even more serious things that bring suffering are commonly referred to as crosses that we must bear. But that's not right. Jesus isn't talking about the cross as a symbol of just any garden variety suffering. He's talking about the death-dealing power of the state to impose its will on anyone with enough courage or enough stupidity to question it. As Ched Myers points out, the threat to punish by death is the bottom-line power of the state. And fear of this threat keeps the dominant order intact. And Myers continues by saying that Jesus has revealed that his messiahship means political confrontation with and not rehabilitation of the imperial state. Those who wish to come after him will have to identify themselves with his subversive program. And we know what happens to those kinds of subversives. In other words, according to Jesus, taking up your cross is a willingness to confront the systems of domination that hoard power while continuing to oppress the defenseless and the vulnerable. Because crosses have always been reserved for those who pose a threat to the state. The, the, the willingness to say no to the ruling powers, Jesus wants everybody to know, is always fraught with the reality that the ruling authorities have a nasty habit of killing those whom they feel threatened by. I mean, once you start talking about LGBTQ people having the same rights and protections as everybody else, well, you put yourself in the crosshairs of everyone who likes the world the way it is. Or, or, or I mean, just say what should be obvious to everyone, <coughs> that black lives matter. And you'll start experiencing the power of the people who employ crosses as a threat. Sometimes literally. Speak up and tell the world that children ought to be free to go to school without the fear of some aggrieved loner with an AR-15 busting in, or that, or that houseless people ought to be afforded the space to live and retain their dignity, or that people who come to this country in search of a better life for their families ought to re be received with hospitality and the love of the foreigner that God commanded of us, 
and you'll witness the assembly line that mass produces crosses fire up in earnest. <coughs> Our cross to bear, in other words, is a cross a concession that our willingness to speak up on behalf of those who've been oppressed, a, a, a concession that our willingness to fight for justice for the powerless for whom justice is always a nice word used by the people in charge to give an excuse for why they're the ones fit to be in charge. It's a concession that our willingness to live like Jesus <coughs> is always a potentially deadly one. Our cross to bear, like Jesus before us, isn't just a question of suffering our own private indignities. It's a question of who we're willing to suffer indignities for. In a world obsessed with its own private longings, following Jesus frees us from ourselves and redirects our longings. Focusing them not on ourselves, but onto the people who need our passion the most. The despised and rejected, the, the misused and forgotten, the voiceless and the vulnerable. In other words, the people who are always at the mercy of the people who make crosses. Our cross to bear is a holy obsession not with saving ourselves, but with giving ourselves to save others. And that's an obsession that actually seems worth it. It may not be what we expected, but that's what God has asked. And that's what the world needs. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.